Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. So I'm joined today by Heather McClellan, who is the director and founder of Designed to Move, which is a specialist functional rehab service for serious personal injury clients. So welcome, Heather. Thank you, Shabnam. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, we don't have, we haven't had many physio-based clinicians actually. So this is quite exciting for me, and particularly because of what you do. But before I get carried away with all my questions, tell us who you are and tell us who you are and what do you do? (laughs) Well, um, yeah, as you've just alluded to there, my background is as a physiotherapist. Um, I qualified uh, quite a long time ago and um, (laughs) spent now um, a lot of my career in occupational health um, and returned to work rehabilitation. I've also spent time in the NHS and and private practice. And uh, over the last actually within the last five to ten years which sounds like a long time that started getting more involved with serious injury type clients and their complexity and that that brings as I moved into all sort of chronic pain management and um, you know dealing with people who are struggling to return to function and um, probably designed to move itself was um, founded as a limited company in 2015 so and over that time we've we've just grown from it really being me as a sole practitioner to now having um, a, a little leadership team and a, a group of over 30 clinicians across the UK, which is growing steadily all the time. Mm. Just that little synopsis of your background, it's really clear how uh, the name came about, actually, <laughs> you know, sort of designed to move. It's all, you know, there's a real sense of kind of getting out there, getting back into the community. There's a real sort of like strong theme within that and, and getting kind of I think you say like functionality and yeah I, I guess I'm curious as am I understanding functionality correctly by defining it in that sort of accessing the community kind of way and getting out there and getting back to uh, some kind of l- life being very practical about mm. things isn't it because you know so my background in occupational health the the goal was always to return people to work and that is really getting down to the nuts and bolts. And I say that with just a little irony. I worked in a shipyard. <laughs> mm. we built, uh, submarines and, and surface ships for the Navy, lots of nuts and bolts. But you know, <laughs> what exactly do you need to be able to do to get back to work? Well, you need to be able to drive to work, to drive home. That's going to be you know, half an hour each way of sitting. So can you tolerate sitting? Then when you're at work, what are you going to be doing? Are you sitting behind a desk or driving a computer? Or actually, are you going to be crawling around in the bottom of the submarine, having to get yourself between pipes and then be stuck there for a couple of hours whilst welding, wearing full PPE, you know, and the rehabilitation mm. for that, you know, it needs to build up to in, include all those aspects and, and the fact mm. that that might just get really hot and be really dirty and be really claustrophobic. And, and it might be painful, you know, to be stuck in that particular position for a couple of hours at a time. So it had to be really practical for the person who, you know, in in nearly all my years, most people want to keep their jobs. And it had to be practical for the employer. You know, how do we make keep people at work whilst looking after them in a way that's sensible? So I think that underpins it. And personally, I just love getting out and about and and seeing what people do for a living, um, what their hobbies are and, you know, the joy that it brings to enable people to return or either return to the things that they love 
or find something new and, and the, the um, fulfillment that that gives them. We have a little enterprise promise, actually, which I'll share with you. It's like a mission statement, which is moving you towards fulfilling possibilities. Ooh, that's nice. <laughs> that's so nice. Like, you know, looking always for potential yeah. towards what that might be, but keeping that open because certainly for our serious injury clients, it may not be the same things that they did before, um, yeah. but it may be helping them explore new options. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I really like that. And that's actually the essence of rehab in, in some ways. Absolutely. And so the functional rehab, tell me a little bit more about that. But I, yeah, yeah, because you've, for me, you're, you're, you're kind of heading that way. What, what is functional rehab? Tell me. Okay. So th- this is kind of my definition of it, and we'll, we'll get into the nuances of this in a moment. But, you know, if we look at function and rehabilitation and things like the, the World Health Organization's view of those things, it's really the process of restoring someone to health or normal life through that might be training or it might be therapy after injury towards goals of specific activities, purposes or tasks. And we choose in Design to Move to refer to that as functional rehabilitation. It sounds like then that functional rehab is not necessarily a set phrase or it could mean different things to different people. Mm, absolutely. So I think there's a few, there's a couple of really important things to say here that it's not owned by any one mm. professional. So I'm sure there'll be other people listening to, the, to this from other clinical backgrounds and non-clinical backgrounds who totally relate to that. And that's the goal that they have for their clients. And that's the truth of it is that for many of us, this is a team sport. It's not about one professional. Um, the client is at the centre. We'll get onto that, obviously. And it may be a number of different professional backgrounds and people who are involved. But then the other aspect of it is that, and it makes it tricky, is that it can be called different things in different places. So functional rehabilitation is also referred to as active rehabilitation or functional restoration. And it may be part of pain management programs or work rehab programs. And depending on your source, what you're reading, what you're looking at, it goes by different names and you have to kind of dig around. So what exactly does that mean in this circumstance? Mm. It makes me think just in terms of the definition of helping people get effectively, I mean, you didn't, you, you were much more eloquent than I'm about to sound, but getting people to return to work or their, their sort of lifestyles that they now are better suited to given the injury. And like you say, sort of rediscover a, a sort of possibility or potential. Isn't that what everyone should be doing? So isn't technically everyone a functional rehabilitist, yeah. if that is a yeah. word? Absolutely. And it's a very interesting um, position that we kind of, we adopted because we felt that we needed to, um, to set apart from perhaps some other, uh, what I would class as traditional clinical approaches that are, you know, maybe steeped in some history around doing to the patient rather than involving the client, mm. um, you know, being, being subject to passive treatments rather than being an active participant in your own care and rehabilitation mm-hmm. both on a, a psychological level but also on a practical level so we we have been very specific about using the terminology not least because actually what it does is engage us in this kind of conversation which says well what what do we mean by that and therefore what yeah. are our outcomes so our outcomes are about well, what are the functional goals that the client has and then uh, structuring the rehabilitation around those outcomes it doesn't mean that we ignore things like pain, range of motion, strength, fitness, but they are components 
of the whole, and the whole is the, the functional goals. In the ideal world, absolutely everybody would be, be taking this approach. Yeah, and it's. Um, I guess I'm just. Try- I'm. I guess I'm just thinking uh, for for our audience who are listening in. How do we know that someone is doing functional rehab according to the definition that you talked about? And how would we know that? You know, what I guess are there any sort of principles or hallmarks that we could say? You know, that is functional rehab, and that is. You know, this is one really known evidence based way that um, we know that, that works for clients. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So the, there's a couple of, um, well, I'd say we take our principles and I'm going to, I'll go through, we have seven key principles okay. of effectual sure. rehabilitation and they are based on a combination of uh, things like strategic reviews around different rehabilitation approaches very broad, very high-level sort of Cochrane-type report reports. There haven't been any recently. And they also mix and match the different types of the different terminology around what is a rehabilitation program. Mm. <clears throat> so it's very broad. Then there's been a, quite a recent best practice guideline around musculoskeletal care, um, which has looked at, um, it's brought together basically recommendations from high-quality clinical guidelines across the board. And so what are, the, what are the similarities here? And then based on our experience, you know, of myself as a clinician in this sort of world for over 25 years and other team members, but now within Design to Move, we've got our own data and outcomes that, that show, you know, our service is effective in delivering what, what we say we deliver. So mm. in terms of our seven principles of effective functional rehab, I'll just go through them really quickly and then, you know, feel free to pick up on any that you really want to go into. So. The first one, which is also the very top one on the uh, best practice guidelines, is that care should be patient-centred and individualised. And I don't think anyone listening to this will argue with that. (laughs) But it's so, so important, especially in the serious injury world, because there is never going to be one size fits all for, um, well, for anyone, but definitely for this group. So that's Mm. number one, individualised or a patient-centred programming. Number two, patient-reported outcome measures. So having some level of a baseline that we can then go back and review and make sure we're on track. Functional measurement, and there's a couple of elements to that as well, and that is some standardised functional measures out there that come from things like functional capacity evaluation world. But there's also looking at what we would class as non-standardised functional testing and say, well, actually, this person wants to be able to do a certain task very specific to them. There is no standard test out there for this because it's an unusual type of task. Um, but how can we make it measurable and repeatable so we can track progress against it? Mm. Number four is goal setting, you know, and then making that meaningful to the client uh, and being able to evolve that through the course of a program. Number five, which I, as case managers totally relate to, is the ability to bring all this information together. Mm. You know, you're collecting information actually from all these different sources. Um, and then you're having to formulate that into a rehab program, uh, a plan you know, in terms of how's this going to span out over a number of sessions or months, but then also the content from a, an interventional point of view, what sorts of exercises, what sorts of activities, what sorts of locations might you go to, how frequently are we going to do this, how long do we need, all those sorts of bits and bits and bobs. And mm-hmm. then um, number six is progressing the rehabilitation for the specific context of the client. And the one that comes to mind who wasn't a serious injury client, but it's a great example 
I had a, a, a client who was a member of the GB equestrian vaulting team. That wow. means these are the people who stand on the back of a horse while it's cantering in an arena and somebody else, it's like acrobatics on horseback, somebody else will vault up and be held up in their hands above their head. So you might have two or three people stacked high on a horse while it's moving. Gosh, that's <laughs> really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it might result in a serious injury, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the rehabilitation progressions for that are going to be very, very different for somebody mm. who needs to be driving a digger or mowing lawns for a living, you know, and you've got to be sensible, sensible, you've got to manage your own risk in how you do that. But equally, it's got to, to take them down the right route. And then number seven is really coming full circle and it's about measuring success, you know, being able to say, well, how are we going to measure the success? What does success look like for this client? And um, if we've done those things at the beginning, set some goals, got some functional measures and got some uh, patient reported outcomes, we can be measuring those throughout the program and certainly towards the end of the program, review them and say, right, where have we got to? And I think for us, one of the key differences of our programs to some others out there is that we have a beginning and an end where we, this is where we assess, this is the period that we are involved with a client and then we will reassess. And therefore mm-hmm. we can show what progress has been made or not during a certain time frame, and we can there also be recommending whether we think further intervention is needed or whether something different is needed or nothing more is needed. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's our seven principles, which are based on um, the evidence and, um, and they're a couple of years' worth of data that we've got coming through. It obviously takes yeah. a long time to come through when you're looking after people for anything from six months to... Indeed. Months. But actually, the thing that struck me about this, these seven principles is that actually each client is a, is a real case study in its own right, not in the, you know, sort of sense that it's, you know, kind of progress has been made and, you know, that's, it, it is, it's, it's um, you know, improvements are, are clear, but actually it's, it's um, systematized, maybe it's not quite the right word, yeah. but there is a sort of follow through. There's a, you know, there's a, like a, like you can imagine lots of clients once they've been assessed to have the same basic issues and other, you know, other um, injury um, needs are kind of controlled for. That's a kind of little scientific study, actually. That's what it feels like to me. uh, Yeah. And what we've done is um, we have some core outcome measures and a couple of Mm. core tests that we like to use with everybody so that we have some service level data. But actually, as you say, every particular case, because we're taking an individualized approach, Mm. you can't compare client A with client B with client C ever yeah. really you know we, we yeah. have to we try to divvy it out and we've got some you know outcomes about quality of life we've got outcomes around return to work we've got an out- outcome yeah. we look at around mobility because mobility is often of course a very common goal in in whatever form that might be it might be you know mobility is a great example that we we will take a kind of average across all of our clients for our service level data but one client's goal might be to be able to stop using a um, mobility scooter and to be able to Mm. walk their dogs 200 yards down to the shop for someone else it's well actually I want to be able to go hiking for five to six hours and somebody else is well I need to be able to do a both of those things because actually what I want to be able to do is run a marathon next year and I had a climbing instructor once needed to be able to climb himself needed to be able to take other people climbing needed to be able to walk people into the climb and out from the climb so 
the nuances of you know what is mobility is is vast but yes every single case is is a fascinating case study um, mm. individual data <laughs> yes and i mean obviously the examples that you've given are quite msk oriented but i mm. am i right in in thinking that you you do work with brain injury clients as well just to clarify that in case that yes. was a question anyone had <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting um, situation for us because obviously a lot of the um, musculoskeletal and, and sort of polyorthopedic trauma uh, clients do have an associated brain injury, um, mm-hmm. and which of course impacts on their ability to um, participate in rehabilitation potentially as well. Mm-hmm. I would say where our work kind of um, where we're able to get involved is people who have um, what I think you know, is really classed as a subtle brain injury or walking wounded in that they maybe wanting to return to physical activity and they need to resume fitness. And so they may say, I want to be able to go hiking for five hours a a day because that's what I did before my brain injury, but I Mm. lack confidence. I don't know if I can do it. And we can definitely help with aspects around that, planning, building up stamina, building up fitness. Confidence is obviously a huge thing. What we don't get involved with is people who need complex um, physical neurological rehabilitation mm-hmm. we would recommend a more specialist um, service for that yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah we're we're having we're getting more and more involved with um, yeah. brain injury clients and having some really great outcomes using this approach because you know this approach works for every type of client again it's not confined to a certain type of clinical condition no that's right and and i think for me you use the word participation and that kind of struck me as um, interesting from a systemic perspective. Obviously, your client needs to be engaged and participating, but actually what you're also saying, particularly in, I think it was your fifth maybe principle about a kind of pulling the data and the, the knowledge and the information that you've got about the client together, the different goals from the different disciplines. I'm thinking there's a systemic participation engagement from the MDT. And of course, you've got the families as well. And I'm just thinking, ah, that's a lot of coordination. And how that is then differentiated, I suppose. Well, for a start, how do you do that? And secondly, how is that differentiated between a case manager? Because in my mind, being a case manager, I'm thinking that's kind of what I, I mean, it's very, very difficult to do. Um, and I, of being a psychologist as well, I, I have a, a formulation-based equivalent um, that we engage with with us, with our service. But it's the, it's one of the hardest things to do is have everyone kind of on the same page and having yeah. that information, being able to pull together to be able to then say, actually, we're all sort of thematically doing the same thing, albeit from our own disciplines. Yeah. Is that hard? How do you, how do you, do, how do you do it? Because you're saying, you know, you're, you're obviously coming from a, a cog in, in the wheel, in the, wheel, wheel. In the machine yeah. or whatever, you know, whatever the saying is. Um, but then you've got the case manager as well. How do you, how do, how do you do it? What does it look like when you do it? <laughs> well, I guess interestingly, what it looks like most of the time um, for us is, and, and I, yeah, the cog in the wheel is a great one or, you know, jigsaw, is that we, I guess it goes in both directions, doesn't it? When we work with a, you know, really effective case managers, the case mm. managers have, have decided on what the team needs to be here for a particular client, you know, which professionals and skills you need within the team. And we therefore may be one part of a multidisciplinary team. Um, Mm -hmm. And that may be, um, we may be providing physio, 
there may be occupational therapists, there may be psychologists, there may be nutritionists and, you know, all sorts of um, other people involved as well. And, and that's even before we get onto the, the, the family themselves and the structures mm. beyond that. And, um, well, to be honest, it, it can be a challenge for us. You know, we, we follow this approach. Um, we'd like to think that the other professionals working in this sector are also following this approach, but it depends on the case manager, how well yeah. it's communicated across the team and how well the team gel on that. And, you know, we are happy to be involved with multidisciplinary team meetings and we're happy to have conversations with other professionals. Um, and to try and make this as streamlined as possible for the client. I think one of the key things that I'm always super aware of is that the client potentially is having, you know, a different professional turn up every other day of the week. And maybe even talking about what appears to be exactly the same goal. So it may be the same goal written down on a piece of paper because it's just one sentence, but how our clinicians approaching it versus how the psychologist is approaching it versus how the occupational therapist is approaching it are all slightly different. They're all relevant. Mm-hmm. They're different views. I don't know if you've ever come across that analogy of the, of the elephant and the blind man. Mm-hmm. You know, you're all kind of coming at the same thing, the same elephant, um, with a slightly different perspective. All of which yeah. are adding value. But if you're not speaking to one another, then you could be creating conflict for the client yes. and understanding. So we would much prefer to have conversations where we are sure about these goals are shared across the whole team. Um, and what is our contribution to that and, and maybe you know there's definitely times and places for facilitating joint sessions where you know mm. say your goal is going to the gym so you know the occupational therapist might be looking at that from a point of view of how does the client plan their travel um, are they going to get themselves to the bus stop on time is the bus going to get them to the gym in time for the appointment that we're going to ask them to make with the personal trainer yeah. and then they've got to the gym from a physio point of view, we might be looking at that going, well, we want them to be going two to three times a week. We want them to be doing a workout in the gym of you know, 30 minutes and we want it to include this kind of exercise. And we want to have a conversation with the personal trainer to make sure that the client is safe, understands how to use the equipment and the personal trainer can keep an eye on them when we're not there. <laughs> mm. So the, the, the simple goal of wants to be able to go to the gym two to three times a week, you know, is is actually being come at from different directions, but we can potentially combine all that into maybe one visit yeah. and do it together yeah. instead of it being separate discussions. And it's not straightforward, is it? And then you, if you no. also add into the mix, you know, um, family who yeah. may, may be supportive, occasionally, of course, can be over-supportive and over-protective and actually mm-hmm. discourage somebody from doing something that you've been working really hard to encourage and overcome fear avoidance around. Yeah example Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. and of course care teams as well which I didn't bring in but obviously a big part of it and yeah it's the same same principle I guess do you do any sort of what we would say in psychology in the psychology word psychoeducation around you know kind of what the the model is that you're using or the the approach and how it how their role is involved you know how they can be involved in that um, I guess um, it's quite rare actually for us to work with people who have a lot of a care team right yeah of course okay sure with. Um, and it will depend on the individual client how involved their family is you know some clients mm. their family will sit in on their sessions maybe to begin with and then they they often don't so it is often just the client that we're dealing with in our sessions um, but obviously you get a feel you know if you meet other members of the family and you when you're in the home 
and you can get a feel for for what's going on and mm. what gets said. And and if that if things are becoming apparent that there's issues, then we would you know bring a partner or a family member into the session and, and have that discussion or try and engage them. I've regularly tried to engage children <laughs> in, mm. in in making rehabilitation more fun, uh, combining. Um, desire to be involved with their children with their rehabilitation yeah yeah the real application of the point of being more functional is to do yeah. things that your life will be enhanced a great as example, a result actually, of, yeah. it's fairly fairly recent as you know one one chap wanted to be able to take his three-year-old to the park mm. on his own because they were expecting a second baby and he needed to be able to take the slightly older child out and away from the home so his wife could you know have a rest and, and do what she needs to do so it was really high on his agenda to be able mm-hmm. to walk independently with his three-year-old to the park which was a good half hour away oh, well wow. playing with her there yeah be able to actually Gosh. play with her on the equipment yeah. and come home again yeah how massively motivating is that just intrinsically yeah. you know let alone <laughs> um yeah uh, in terms of kind of the things that you have to do um so so I, I mean in my mind I've kind of got this picture of you know I, I always think in pictures I've kind of got the clients in the middle possibly with family as well depending on how involved they are in general and how sort of independently living people are um and then around sort of th- this team that is um sort of all connected through this yeah yeah and I'm I, I think yeah I as a case manager who has who shares that view and that vision, I I do know how difficult it is, and and I think like you um, have kind of said earlier on, there's something about the case manager doing an assessment effectively on the types of services that are out there that allows um, them to then have a team that is more likely to if you know the functional rehab idea is um, it makes sense to them, of course. Um, and indeed, you could argue that it sh- should probably to all of us. Um, but uh, that, that, that actually, in some ways, the cho- the sourcing of the therapist or the MDT is almost the, the you know the one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle, as opposed to just seeing that um, someone's got capacity and is local, um, which might be in a busy so. world, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of what you narrow it down to ultimately. But it feels like actually you're possibly making the job harder than it needs to be um <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it's harder than it needs to be i think the best way to frame it is that certainly if you're coming at this from a clinical perspective as a, a clinical background as a case manager this is about clinically reasoning what is most appropriate for your client what are their clinical needs in terms of you know the types of interventions that you need and the types of professionals that you need to provide those for them that's the clinical need. That's the first part. Mm. You know, who do you need and what sort of things do they need to recover? You know, because again, yeah. at the end of the day, this is about trying to ensure the best possible recovery for people. The second part, <laughs> I this is very much a biased view of what, which order these should come in. Um, you know, a solicitor or an insurer might have a different, different you might reverse this. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It might be unfair on them too. The practicalities of assessing that care. So or accessing, sorry, accessing the care is that, you know, if you've decided that that person needs at least three different types of therapist, what is the best way to enable that client to engage with three separate therapists? Is it mm. having three different appointments on three different days at the same hospital? That's happened to me week after week after week, because that actually can be 
you know, seems to be the most straightforward approach because they don't need anything other than what can be provided in maybe the local statutory care services. But actually, the way that's put together is really difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. To get to those appointments, they've got to repeat their story. There's no interconnectedness between those professionals. So that might seem the simplest thing, but the truth is that might be really difficult and impractical for the client to manage. So would it be better for those people to be going into the client's home? Would it be better to have the client going to a residential rehab centre where all those therapists are on hand and they are immersed in that world for several, you know, a week or more at a time? So, um, and then what are the benefits? You know, is it actually more beneficial for that client to be seen in their home where you can really address the functional tasks that they are dealing with every single day in their own environment? And you can take them to their local park and you can take them to their local gym and make sure there's real transferability in their rehab? Or would they be better going to a rehabilitation centre because they need to be fully immersed in that world to have some real you know, impactful behaviour change and meet other people that are in similar circumstances, have access to all those professionals? And I think that's where you know, the nuances of this comes into play, and we'll get on to the other factor in a moment, but just revisiting that, you know, we spoke earlier about a couple of examples are, you know, I had a young, young male client who was 21 and the um, people managing the case had been looking at a, a residential pain program, mm-hmm. but it was actually a three-month, 12-week full-time residential program. And this lad had a job and he wanted to keep his job. And to go on a three-month residential program, he would have lost his job because he would not have been able to remain employed. Mm. Um, he also wanted to be able to get a bike and go out with his mates in his local area. And the, and the likelihood of the group he might have ended up with, because it was um, an NHS-led pain management program, is that he might have been the only person in the group who'd actually suffered a major trauma. Mm. And therefore, he might not have been very relatable to some of the other clients in the group. Mm. So thinking about those things is that, you know, on paper, it might be simple, let's send them to a residential program, but... <laughs> Maybe not. Or, you know, what are you going to do when they get home? Maybe they need wraparound. Maybe the truth is they need a bit of everything at different stages, depending on where they are. And I won't go, go on into that anymore. But so then the third factor, I think, is, is, a, is definitely important, of course, in our world is the value of the case. Because it mm. does need to be proportionate, of course, to the cost and the outcome that's, that's desired. And I guess return to work for me, I'm biased. My background is occupational health. But if a functional program is more likely to enable somebody to ret- return to work than, say, standard clinic-based physio, for example, mm. and the impact of loss of earnings on the value of the case could be significant, then it may well be worth picking what appears to be maybe a little bit of a more robust, more input, perhaps a little more intensive than you might think at the outset program in order to try and make sure that the return to work aspect of rehabilitation is addressed and every opportunity is put there to enable someone to resume function for work, which might not happen in a different type of service. Mm. Yeah, no, to me, it's very clear in the way you've described it. Um, and it, it really, it makes a lot of sense to me and really rings true for some of the experiences that I've had. I'm just wondering what criticisms or barriers you tend to come up to up with because it is it's it's kind of the same but it's different (laughs) you know (laughs) like it isn't the same at all really on paper it's 
it, it's um it sounds similar you know but yeah. I, I i can see that it's a it's quite a different way to 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 think about in actual practicalities um i suppose and how it's coordinated you know that mm-hmm. what you're what you offer and what you're talking about and i'm just curious as to how that's met by solicitors who are strategizing and thinking about rehab in in the way that they do and then you've got deputies who are thinking about the funding and then you've got case managers you know so on and so forth do you face many criticisms or barriers do people greet this with open arms this idea with open arms um it's quite variable obviously tell me about that journey (laughs) yeah we we have well there's kind of two key objections maybe or questions mm. maybe mm. and that one I mean, one of the things that slightly as a side point though is that we all do need to appreciate where the other parties are coming from on these things but because sure. of course the without the funding that solicitors and insurers are able to secure we wouldn't be in a position to provide the rehabilitation that we can true um so we are you know ultimately all again aiming for an outcome that um hopefully puts the person back in the most sensible place for them going forward yeah there's there's a couple of things is because we do term our services as functional rehabilitation i would say you know one of the key things is people don't understand what that means mm-hmm. and we have done that for a couple of reasons one is because although it should not be an unusual approach because it's very much based on the evidence um we are in a world where it isn't always the usual approach so you can't assume sadly i'd love to say you could as a you know trying to source therapy you can't assume that everybody is working in an evidence-based way so you need to be sussing out well well, what does that mean and does this providers that i'm looking at do they work in this way and we've, we've got some resources that we can point people to to help with that because you know, using the term functional rehabilitation allows us to open up the discussion that actually, so what do you mean by that? What's involved in that? Now, those are our seven principles that we've covered. But what also applies for us is about having this as an active program where the client's fully involved, and it's client's um, focus goals, but also having a, a beginning, potentially a middle and an end. So there is a known, within reason, I mean, it's still flexible, but a known time frame, known costs, so that it makes it easier for all parties to plan. Um, and one bit of feedback that we have had in the past is that it enables solicitors to plan things like expert witness reassessments mm-hmm. and things because they are anticipating that there will be a, a pause in the programme um, or a, a moment of review at four to six months, for instance. A lot of our programmes last about six months and then there'll be a full set of beginning and after results because what we do with our assessments and reassessments is our reports will include the data and the measurements and the outcomes so that you'll be able to see as a case manager or as an insurer or a solicitor, you'll be able to see has there been progress and there will obviously be some reasoning in there if, if there has or if there hasn't, what's gone well, what's not gone so well. Mm. So really the, the main objection is people not understanding what it is and saying, well, yeah. that. You know, the the case, uh, for instance, the expert witness has said we need physiotherapy, occupational therapy and psychology. It doesn't say functional rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So the the next step to that would be, well, okay, well, if you go and look at the programs available to you locally, which might be ours or it might be a residential program, you need to go and ask the questions, uh, you know, mooch around the website, ring them up. (laughs) We're always happy to have chats Um, Mm. and ask, well, what does your program include? 
you know, if you came to us, you may be able to tick your physio box at the moment. You might have to go, you would have to go somewhere else to tick your psychology box. If, but if you went to a residential program, they might be able to tick all three boxes for you mm. straight off the bat that all those therapies are going to be included. So you're for, you can fulfill the requirements of the expert witness in both scenarios, but you've still got to decide what's going to be better for your client, community-based mm. care, residential care, or actually, do you need a, a bit of both? You know, do you need someone to pick up in the community once they've been discharged from their residential? That then leads us on to the second biggest objection, you know, which is about money. Um, yeah of course and that's fine um you know we get asked about this a lot in terms of costs well you know functional delivery model costs more than a clinic yes there's no doubt about it um again we've got a a nice little pdf we can um put in your resources that gives people more information about Mm. our program because our functional rehabilitation program will not look the same as somebody else's functional rehabilitation Mm. program because we all have those different approaches but I would say, for instance, in terms of costs, you know, standard clinic-based care will probably cost you in the region of hundreds of pounds over a few months, you know, because you're having fairly short sessions and frequency will be variable. Community per discipline. Functional. Yeah, per discipline, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Community-based functional programmes, again, maybe per discipline, but that will probably cost you in the region of thousands of pounds, mm. you know, b- between the five to ten, maybe fifteen. But then if you're looking at residential rehab, because that's the other comparison, mm. is most people jump to and try and compare us to clinic-based care. But actually, if you look at the other comparison, which is residential rehab, though you're talking starting mm. at 10,000 up into several tens of thousands, oh, yeah. depending on how long someone's going to be in care. So it mm. might be that you, say, take £5,000, would buy you a lot of clinic-based care. It would buy you six to eight months, depending on the discipline of community-based care. Mm. it would buy you one week of residential care. Mm. So we're still back to that conversation around, well, what is the clinical need? What is the practicality? What does this client really need to enable them to make the right recovery? And of course, Mm. all those numbers then need to be put into the value of the case context. And, you know, if if we can enable your client to return to work, um, and 94 to 100% of our clients are back in work by the time they've finished our programmes, Mm. then that will mitigate loss of earnings in a claim in the final settlement. So, you know, there's that cost-benefit risk analysis approach that says, well, I could go for standard clinic care because it's going to be cheaper up front, but if it doesn't work and we're still sat here in six to 12 months and still having clinic-based care and it's still not working and I've got no results yeah. because there's no outcome measures being collected, you're still going to have to pay for another service. Yeah, yeah. So it's complex. I yeah, yeah. You know, it's why it attracts us. But those are the key objections. People not understanding mm. how functional rehabilitation is different. And I, you know, very much welcome the opportunity for these conversations to, to tell people about it and invite people to come and chat with us about it. And then the costs, you know, which is a perfectly reasonable thing, but it's not as simple as saying, well, they're half the price of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it just, it really brings back to the idea what are you trying to achieve? What is your sort of, yeah. uh, you know, as a, which, whatever um, discipline or whatever professional you are, whether it's a, a litigator, whether it's a yeah. deputy, whether you're a case manager, actually, it's what are we trying to achieve? How are we trying to, to do that in the best possible really, way? It's about getting back to the value. Yeah. The value that you need from a service and value for money 
versus cost they are different things and definitely insurer needs value for money out of Mm. their funding that they give you know um and we want to provide valued care so i have to say you know one thing that we do do also is tell people if we don't think we're the right service yeah because we don't want you to be wasting or the funders to be wasting money on our service when that client could be better served somewhere else yeah right yeah um, yeah, so that's also part of it. Yeah. There's something about sustainability in there as well, and yeah. sort of, you know, kind of, uh, sort of prevent almost a preventative type model, which is um, me again, more with my psychology hat, just thinking actually, <laughs> if you put the, if you get it right at the beginning, you're more likely to not have to worry about it later on. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, well, pre- I think, you know, in the yeah, NHS, yeah. there's been a big drive towards this um, getting it right first time. And I'm a huge advocate of yeah. that. Let's get this yeah. right if we can. It's not, all, it's oh. not always possible, obviously, with no. complex clients, but get it right first time so that, uh, and I get a couple of the notes I'd written actually about, you know, because if you don't, there's a couple of major issues. You know, it's going to cost you more, probably in the long run, because if you're going to have to switch provider, it's going to cost you more. But the non-financial costs of the time taken to build a rapport between the therapist and the client, to build trust, to build confidence, mm-hmm. to start that again with a new provider, 100%. it's really difficult. Sometimes oh. you've got to do it because for whatever reason, a relationship has broken down. But, you know, if that can be avoided and we structure our programs as programs, as a block of intervention, because we work through it in a strategic way mm. and the last kind of few sessions of our programs are geared towards setting the client up for self-management within their own environment and community Mm. so if somebody and it happens occasionally if somebody decides to pull funding and wants to end a program early that can be really detrimental to the progress that's being created and just leave somebody hanging yeah and yet we were ready to kind of um, we literally you know gently pass people into community-based yes that transition is so important psychologically and physically endings are so important I would say that I'm a psychologist but it really is (laughs) I can see how that's true even in more physical you know uh, therapies um, the way we we do our programs which is different to a lot mm. of other providers is there is this package and you pay for the whole package and we do not Put it this way, if somebody thinks they need to close a, a package early, we really need to have a conversation about it and the implications yeah. of it. Because it's set up in this way, the clinician right. will, will be pacing their interventions accordingly. We will be running towards well, what is self-management going to look like for this client? What are the goals? And yeah. it's not as simple as just going, we've changed our mind. We want to save yeah. some money. We want to pull the client out. You know, It's very disruptive in terms of well, on a very simple level, we won't be able to show you what's worked or what hasn't if we've not yeah. got to the point of, of being able to review a substantial input. Yeah, it's potentially bordering unethical if you ask me. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of, it, it is like, rare. Yeah, it is rare, but it oh, yeah, I'm happen. sure. I'm sure. But if you're upfront and transparent and you're not changing the costs particularly, no, um, no, I can't. you know, we have so our, our, and packages. So yeah. yeah. Do you have like an ideal client then, or an ideal sort of set of <laughs> you know like what 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 that how would you know that this is a client that you can work with what would you be looking for yeah well I know that's a it's a reasonable question because um again on a very kind of high level if we think about the market that we're working in you've got a sort of fast track um what I tend to call high volume low value end of the market Mm. you've got a mid-range uh value market serious injury market and then you've got the top end, so highly catastrophic cases. Mm. So on that level, we fit firmly in the middle. 
we're definitely in the middle there. Now, what does that middle look like? That middle looks like um, polytrauma or polytrauma in terms of multiple sites of orthopedic fracture or um, musculoskeletal injury and pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might look like uh, amputation um, mm-hmm. of you know one part or possibly more than one part. Um, it certainly looks on a regular basis like you know a fracture here, um, bruising over there, bump to the head, possibly concussional type symptoms. And and as, again, a, a kind of simple level is if you send someone to clinic based care, clinic based care, which is entirely you know, a, um, a viable service. So this is not saying it's not right for some people, but if you have a one knee injury, mm. then clinic-based care is probably ideally set up for that. But as soon right. as you're into two or three body parts being injured and needing assessing and needing rehab in a coordinated way that is towards function, mm. then many clinics, not all, but many clinics won't be set up for that. doesn't mean they can't do it, or they won't do it for you, but then their model of delivery, you know, they're based around 30 minute or 45 minute appointments. Mm. And the truth is your client's going to need double appointments that every time they go, or they really need to be able to get in the gym or they really be able to need to go for a walk. And, uh, you know, I've run my own private practice clinic in the past. It's not that easy to say, well, I want to go and take that client out to the gym or out to the park in that slot because I've actually only mm. got that slot because the rest mm. of the diary is mm-hmm. around it with these other types of clients. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think that that middle area, that clinical group, um, the value of the case, you know, the, the prob- there is a line. I'm, I'm fairly sure there is a line. Um, it's probably the ones that are going to be over 100,000, I would say. doesn't mean we don't get involved with lower value cases, but the chances are there's more of a cost-benefit decision to be made there, and that may sure. come back to things like return to work um, and mm-hmm. how important is that to the value of the case. Yeah. Um, may just decide to invest a bit more in rehab in order to try and, and obviously we can't guarantee everything because it's down to you know how it all comes together but if you want a higher chance of there being a functionally robust outcome then you may choose to spend a little bit more than if that's not not sure of your considerations that makes yeah. sense yeah no it does it makes perfect <laughs> sense no that's really helpful and and I suppose with that in mind I'm just thinking, what would you say to um, those listening in today in terms of kind of top tips for being able to get the best out of their clients? And, and I suppose um, ways to, to think about their clients with, with, the idea that you, with the ideas that you and your service offer. So I guess there's a few things there, aren't there? There's this realising that you're coming at it from a clinical reasoning point of view and that you need to actually take the time to understand the different services that are available for this client and which one is going to be the best fit uh, for them. Ask some questions around, you know, these functional rehabilitation principles are quite easy to ask questions around, you know, so how do you individualise care? Um, How do you measure patient-reported outcomes? What sort of measures do you use? Do you do any functional measurement? Do you do goal setting? If you do, how do you do it? And, you know, our version of goal setting, we try and keep our goal setting really very straightforward and simple. Mm. Um, But it wouldn't be, uh, you know, if you were looking for a more uh, significant, you need a more significant complex intervention, you'd have more complex goal setting, depending on the client. Um, and, you know, how do you measure results? Will we, will we see the outcomes? What reports do you provide as standard all those sorts of questions. I think the other thing, it's interesting, we kind of sometimes forget now that what we do is quite different. 
And the discharge report that you'll get from our service is really quite significant in terms of giving you all the results. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, you know, you might get uh, 10 lines from a, a clinic-based service just saying, you know, this client's made some improvement and um, it's all good. <laughs> it's yeah. very, very basic. And that's just because sure. that's what they're used to providing. Um, whereas we, we only work with this serious injury sector. Um, so we are used to providing reports that have a lot more detail in. Again, there's mm. not right or wrong. It depends what you want and what you need. So have those conversations with providers, whether it's us or anybody else. You know, if, if it's us, then call us. And we've got lots of resources, then we're happy to chat through with no obligation. You know, mm. We will tell you if we don't think we can help. So I think that, that idea of getting the right service in at the right time, if you can, uh, first, uh, first mm. and foremost, is brilliant. Being open to the fact that you may need a combination of all these different models that we've, we've mentioned, actually. You know, it may be mm-hmm. that somebody needs residential rehab first, then they need some community-based rehab, then they need to be put in touch with a local clinic-based facility that can just help them out now and again when they need, or a personal trainer at the gym to, to maintain their physical fitness going forward. That would be one way of looking at it. Mm. So you may need combinations depending on, on the stage of recovery and all those things. And the other thing I would say we find is really critical, and <laughs> it's hard to say as a clinician, maybe even more important sometimes than the clinical stuff, is setting up the communication at the beginning yeah. of a case between the case manager and our team. But if that, again, from the case manager point of view and what we talked about before, setting up communication that will go across the whole multidisciplinary team. Yes. Setting up communication that potentially also includes the insurers and solicitors, because sometimes we find that the case manager really understands what we're about, but that information hasn't been transmitted to the, to the solicitor or the insurer. And they sometimes decide that they're not keen on what's happening, but they've not actually had the opportunity to really have that conversation. And they haven't had a direct conversation with us as a provider um, to really understand what we do. So we're happy to do that. And so that communication bit, going back to the case manager, it's like, well, how often... If you referred a case to us, we'd say, well, how often do you want us to update you? How mm. do you want to be updated? Do you want a phone call? Do you want an email summary? Do you have any deadlines? You know, have you got to submit an INA or an update report by a certain date because a funding meeting is due to happen the following three days? And that to us, if we've got that information, we will do our best to make your life as easy as possible by making sure you've got the information in the way you need it and the time you need it so that <laughs> when you come to and work with us you go oh, well it's a team effort you know you're not kind of having to drag information out of us or chase us for information that, that we're delivering what you need to mm. make the case run smoothly as yeah. well as delivering the clinical care yes gosh that would that's music to my ears as a case <laughs> manager I'd like I don't have to chase someone to get the details that I need in order to <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how pressured case managers are and how um, I'm sure many of our case manager audience would um, probably yeah, value we that. Really appreciate that as well. you know, yeah. Going back to that triangulation of information, we're only yes. triangulating information from our assessment. You know, you guys as case managers uh, and, and solicitors and like, have got vast amounts of information to mm. deal with and people to deal with. Mm. And, um, you know, if we can make that process just a little bit easier for you guys, then we're all going to make it you know making progress aren't we towards the- well indeed win-win definitely <laughs> real thank you so much and they, they all make sense and, and 
and I think um, they really underline the you know the 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 information that you've shared today actually and and kind of your approach and why it's going to be familiar but it's not going to be necessarily uh, exactly what you do that's kind of you know kind of what it it, it leaves me feeling I think I understand and then I think oh that's a twist <laughs> I, you, know, having... you know we have a framework yeah that means you know what's predictable um, yeah. and what can be predictable but then within that there will be this individualized care for the client and yeah. you asked earlier about objections and things I would say that, that we most frequently get objections when somebody has never used our service before Mm. I'm proud to say, and this is you know proud of my clinical team, proud of our administration and business um, relationship team, that once a case manager has used us once, usually, mm. in most cases, they understand what we do and they are happy to use us again and again yes. for the right clients. And again, we yes. understand fully that your caseloads are very diverse. And mm. that you may, you know, depending on your caseloads and, and your specialisms, if you have them, you may only come to us a couple of times a year. But when you come, it's because you know that we can provide what you're looking for. Um, And you know that we'll have that, you know, conversations around making sure that it runs smoothly. Mm. And that that for us is is great. You know, that's that's the the best business relationship to have. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, Yeah, the return rate sometimes is a a real mark of, you know, the quality ultimately, because, you know, people know what they're they're getting themselves in for because they've done it before and they're happy to do that again. Yes, yeah, and we all know because of the types of clients that, um, you know, the types of injuries that people sadly suffer that sometimes things don't work out mm. the way we planned or the way we hoped. And, you know, we all have to say, well, we don't have to be able to put our hands on our own hearts, don't we, and say, well, we've done our best yes. to make that work. And Definitely. the reason it hasn't, you know, that, you know, that's bound to happen in the world we operate in. No, for sure. Oh, Heather, so much for half an hour <laughs> podcast episode. Um, <laughs> I am going to draw it to an end right now, though, because <laughs> that was pretty epic. Thank you so, so much. Hey, you're welcome. If, if people want to get hold of you, how? And um, yes. is there anything that you want to share, particularly that your uh, service is doing at the moment? Please plug away. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah. So best place to find us is on LinkedIn. And there's a couple of routes there. We have a LinkedIn page for the company, which you can find with designed with an E-D. So D-E-S-I-G-N-E-D, the number two, and then move M-O-V-E, limited. And you can find our company page, which we're posting on regularly with uh, case studies and, and um, testimonials and questions and stuff like that. Um, to find us as people, if you uh, search for me on LinkedIn, just as Heather Designed to Move, you'll find me and our business and relationship manager, Lindsay Shuffleworth. That's Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y and Shuttleworth, S-H-U-T-T-L-E, Worth, W-O-R-T-H. Then we're key people that you can uh, get a hold of. Um, you can email us just info at designedtomove.co.uk and you can call us. <laughs> um, that's okay. 07494177159. In terms of things we're up to, um, I will send you over some links, Shabnam, for mm. some resources that you can put in the, the show notes and share with people. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a couple of activities that we, that we do on a regular basis that are proving really popular. One of those is networks. So this is networking whilst walking. <laughs> um, very much trying to practice what we preach um so we um in the summer months we're not running in, in the winter uh we'll be starting up in uh, march again um small group walks mixed multidisciplinary teams um welcome to attend case managers clinicians solicitors insurers 
um, to get together and, you know, chat about, you know, the things that are affecting our industry and uh, ways to streamline you know, the way that we can work together. So you'll see those on LinkedIn and you can just drop us a note and say, yes, you'd like to come um, at the, the location that suits. And then the other thing that we do um, is called complex case calls. It's like a complex case mastermind. These are really small groups where about once a month at the moment, we have a couple of case managers usually, uh, somebody facilitating from our team and maybe a specialist um, on the call. So, for instance, we've done ones around amputees. Uh, we've got one planned for vocational rehabilitation. And the idea is that the um, case manager brings a case that they may be not necessarily struggling with, but they'd like you know, to bounce some ideas around with mm-hmm. other people in a safe space um, that enables them to get some ideas or, or even just check that you're on track. You know, is there anything you're missing? Um, and they're proving really popular. We do keep them super small. Um, so again, just let us know if you're interested in attending and we'll be, we basically be putting them on on a monthly basis. We have an mm. amazing little advisory board of people that we draw on for expertise as well. So we'll be, we try to bring them into those conversations for extra input. So yeah, you can find all the details about them on our LinkedIn pages um, or you can contact us direct um, and we will let you know when they are. Amazing. That's so good. Thank you, Heather. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And um, I'm absolutely sure that uh, if people aren't going to attend the networks or the complex case calls, um, I'm sure they will be contacting. Yeah. To discuss how we can help and uh, signpost on if we're not the right people. But we've We'd much rather exactly. people call us and, and check and understand. We've got plenty of resources that we can direct people to um, yeah. if, if we need something else so, or need more info. That's amazing. Thank you for that generosity. All right. Well, I will close it for now. But if you have enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and comment. And um, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Before you go... If you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 